The American people should speak. You should go out and vote. You're in voting now. Vote and let your senators know how you strongly you feel. Court? Let Vote now. Are you pack the Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you that because question? the you question is, the question Supreme is, the question will you shut is your, up, man? Listen. That was one of the many low moments of what can safely be described as the sorriest presidential debate in American history. It was marked by constant shouting and interruptions, petty squabbling, and shameless low blows, most of them by President Trump. Joe Biden did call Trump a clown. Trump, in turn, insulted Biden's intelligence and went after his son, Hunter, raising, among other matters, a cocaine problem he once had while he was in the U.S. military. And perhaps most notable of all, the president refused to renounce white supremacist and right-wing extremist groups, even giving a shout-out to one of them, the Proud Boys. Will all this make a difference? We'll talk to two veteran political consultants, Joel Benenson, who was Hillary Clinton's pollster in 2016, and Tim Miller, a strategist for Jeb Bush in 2016, who is now working for Republican voters against Trump on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clyburn, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. What can you say? I mean, you know, from Lincoln Douglas in 1858 to John Kennedy and Richard Nixon in 1960 to this, I mean, further proof we are devolving as a democracy and uh, the state of our politics probably couldn't get any lower. Just watching the post-debate analysis on CNN and there was the usually very restrained strained and sober Dana Bash calling it a shit show. Yeah. And, you know, usually the, the, the analysis after these debates, you know, everyone immediately goes to what impact is it going to have on the politics? Is it going to change the dynamics of the race? Is it going to shake things up? Who won? Who lost? And there'll be time for that. We will do that later on this show. But what was striking to say the American people lost. (laughs) Yeah, well, that that for sure. We'll agree on that. What was striking to me was was and I was, uh, you know, channel surfing. And, you know, that was not the reaction. What the reaction was that this debate was a singular tragedy for for the American people and for uh, American democracy. And some of the, the language, some of the way people described Trump in particular, I mean, just to rattle off a few, David Axelrod called Trump a big fat asshole. <laughs> Gloria Borger on CNN called him monstrous. Jonathan Last, uh, a Republican, you know, with the bulwark, they're never Trumpers, but he called Trump after this debate a sociopath. So the reviews have obviously been scathing. And, you know, I think people are immediately were rethinking whether we should have debates at all. Questions arose whether Biden would 
pull out of, of the next uh, two debates that he's just not going to, you know, has too much dignity and pride to stand next to Donald Trump. We'll see uh, first word from the Biden campaign is he will be there. But I don't know, man. Um, what do they say on t- uh, Twitter? S-M-D-H. You know what that stands for? I do not. I learned that recently. Shaking my damn head. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, look, there's also, look, there, there are two debates more scheduled, including, and then another one, a vice presidential debate. I think that at a minimum, the debate moderators have to do a better job than Chris Wallace in policing the candidates. Perhaps, perhaps almost certainly, state the rules up front. No interruptions. If you do interrupt, we will take it away from your time for doing so. Get the candidates to agree. And then if they don't follow it, uh, the public will be able to see it in plain sight that they're not doing what they just agreed to do. Well, breaking news as we record this podcast on uh, Wednesday afternoon, the Commission on Presidential Debates uh, just actually issued a press release saying that they are going to make some changes to the, uh, to the format. I'll just read the press release that they just put out. Last night's debate made clear that additional, truc- uh, that additional structure should be added to the format of the remaining debate to ensure a more orderly discussion of the issues. The CPD will be carefully considering the changes that it will adopt and will announce those measures shortly. Uh, so uh, the normally very staid Presidential Debate Commission, um, I think, also has been rattled by this um, and is going to make some changes. Now, what people are calling for is uh, mute buttons so that when the president or someone else, you know, continues to interrupt uh, the way Trump did yesterday, they can just be muted. Maybe there are other changes to the format that will be possible as well, but something's got to be done. Yeah, I, I think everybody will agree with that. Look, the, the, the conventional wisdom here is that uh, Trump you know, blew it, that this was his opportunity to uh, regain lost ground to Biden. He is behind in all the polls and that he was not able to do this uh, with this constant you know, with the low blows and the squabbling with with Biden. I didn't think Biden, you know, came off that well at all, actually. You know, he seemed lackluster at times. He, he, he picked up towards the end. And I thought his strongest moment was at the very end about, you know, telling people to go out and vote. This is our democracy. You need to have your voice heard. I thought that was very effective. And I but, also thought know, he was, won- I thought, I also th- thought he was effective when, Trump went after Hunter and went after Hunter for his, uh, Hunter Biden for his substance abuse issues. And Biden, one of the things that he did best in last night's debate was to look at the, you know, straight at the camera, look straight at the, at the viewers and the American people, address them and their problems. And in this particular case, uh, I thought it was a very deft pivot from Trump attacking his own son to Biden turning it around and saying, you know, I too, just like millions and millions of Americans out there, have had you know challenges in my family with uh, drug abuse, and I and you know it was a chance for him to be empathetic, which is what he uh, does best. I think you know, and we'll get into this with Joel Benenson and Tim Miller, 
But I think a big part of uh, Trump's problem is that he came in with no game plan. He had no theory of the case, uh, whereas Biden did. Um, again, it wasn't a great performance, but at least he knew what he was trying to do, which was to address voters directly. And I kind of think this is my hot take. I kind of think Donald Trump missed Steve Bannon, the person who uh, in 2016 created that theory of the case, that the argument that Trump made in 2016, which was a populist argument, which was about, you know, the Americans who were left behind about you know, the whole populist argument that Trump prosecuted in, in 2016. And, and, and there was none of that. All he was was a, was a you know, a kind of a machine gun firing indiscriminately. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good analogy. I will say uh, in that clip we played for uh, the Open, Biden, the line that everybody remembers is, you know, shut up, man. But, you know, it comes after Trump interrupting him because Biden wasn't answering the question of whether he would support packing the Supreme Court, expanding to extra justices. And we'll talk about this with with Benenson and, and Miller. But I thought that was a totally legitimate question. And there's no reason I can think of, no legitimate reason for Biden not to answer it. It's going to be, especially if Amy Coney Barrett gets confirmed, you know, a major issue on the table in the next administration. Um, um, certainly if Biden wins and the Democrats get back control of the Senate. And I think voters have a right to know where Biden stands on what's, you know, what could potentially be one of the biggest issues of 2021. Yeah, I, I think it is a totally legitimate question. I think it's something that people ought to know. I, I, you know, I think I know why he doesn't want to answer that question because, you know, the Democratic base and the grassroots of the party are so enraged that uh, Mitch McConnell is trying to, you know, ram this uh, Supreme Court nomination through. He doesn't want to deflate uh, that enthusiasm. He already has a bit of an enthusiasm gap vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Trump. And so um, he's going to do everything he possibly can not to answer that question. Also, you know, and, and the reason I say that is because I think he is he is against packing the courts. He is an institutionalist. He is a guy who grew up in the Senate. And it's I think he also doesn't really want to end the legislative filibuster. And so he's going to try to get through this without answering the question. Kamal Harris was on CNN after the debate. She was asked about it. She dodged. They will do that for as long as they possibly can. We'll see if they'll get away with it. I think they uh, I think they're going to continue to get asked about this. And, you know, if Trump and his advisors are smart, they'll continually bring it up. And look, the answer can range from what Sheldon Whitehouse told us last week. Um, he has no everything's on the table. Uh, we'll consider it afterwards. I mean, you know, there are ways to answer it. One way would be. I don't know what I want, I want to do on that, but if Republicans ram through Amy Coney Barrett after the election, if they lose the Senate, then that will be a big factor in where I come down on that question. And that, that could, be a, could have been a, 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 mark, a mark for him as to where he stands on that. But look, uh, that's uh, one of the many questions we'll get into with our guests. So let's get right to it. Thank you. 
We now have with us to discuss uh, the uh, extraordinary presidential debate Tuesday night and the state of the race, Joel Benenson, veteran Democratic pollster, and Tim Miller, a writer for The Bulwark and an advisor to Republican voters against Trump. Joel and Tim, welcome to Skullduggery. So uh, let's start out with the debate. Um, what did you guys make of it? And did uh, either candidate gain an advantage? Joel, you go first. Look, I think the cardinal rule of debates is that you have to go in trying to leverage your strengths and inoculate against your weaknesses. I think uh, Donald Trump comes out of last night as the big loser. Uh, he did the antithesis of inoculate against his weaknesses. He reinforced them. From the minute the debate started, he was rude disjointed, he was antagonistic, and uh, not presidential in the least. And he had one opportunity, and I don't think he's going to be able to reclaim this in debates two and three if they happen, but uh, his behavior just uh, reinforced everything people don't like about him. They think he's a loose cannon. He undermines the sense that he can run and manage this country. Before we get to Tim, uh, just quickly, Joel, you mentioned the next two debates. If they happen, there has been some chatter about them not happening. I think the Biden campaign has said that Biden will show up. But do you think that there is any argument for Biden to, to pull out? Does he have reason to do that now? Oh, no, I don't think so. I don't think he has any reason to pull out at all. I think Trump may have a reason to pull out because I don't think his team must be extremely frustrated. This is a man who is uncontrollable. He is undisciplined. He can't acknowledge his weaknesses. And if you have to inoculate your weaknesses, if you have to make amends with the American people for downplaying a coronavirus, which he's been recorded on tape as saying, I think they are uh, they're just walking into a hot cauldron again because he'll do the same thing all over again. That's who he is. He is not going to change who he is. He is 73. He is belligerent. He is antagonistic. He is so narcissistic, he never believes he does anything wrong. Well, it blew up in his face pretty big last night. Tim? Yeah, look, um, before I get to the figure skating judge portion of the debate, I, I do think we'd be remiss not to mention that on, that there were three things that the President of the United States said last night that were the most despicable things that have been said by any major politician in my lifetime. Uh, first, basically giving the Proud Boys a wink-wink that they should stand back and stand by because of the issues with the radical left and, and not condemning white supremacism. After that, he went on one of the most bizarre, no, the most bizarre rant in presidential debate history about how Joe Biden and Barack Obama were complicit in a coup and how we can't trust the results of this election because of bad people in Philadelphia and we can't trust the vote. That's like D-list dictator stuff. And then uh, we had him attacking Joe Biden's son, uh, Hunter Biden, for his past drug addiction. Just a, 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 the kind of personal attack that was used to be verboten in our politics. And it came right after the vice president was talking about one of his two deceased children. It's just it's hard to separate judging this on the points from from somebody that, that um, participated in, in, in those three just completely outrageous and despicable attacks. I do worry on the this political analysis side of things that there might be a response to last night that doesn't help Trump gain voters, maybe, but it does help sort of depress 
voting interest at all in low low interest viewers who watch this and just kind of say a pox on both their houses um uh watched maybe the first 30 minutes where i thought biden was shakier than then I, I felt like he he picked up steam through the last hour uh, i would not be surprised if, if people who aren't junkies like us had already tuned out by then and, and i think obviously trump will have a motivated base so uh that would be i generally agree with joel's analysis but th- those would be kind of the red flags i'd put up I differ with the last point a bit, Tim, that you just made. I think that Trump actually raised the stakes in the debate last night. I think for a lot of swing voters who may have been sitting on a fence, I think they saw something last night. You know, there are two ways to motivate people with a lot of positive passion and energy. That's what Barack Obama did in 2008. I think Trump raised the stakes by uh, showing people in real time a man who is president of the United States and completely unfit to be president of the United States. And I think some of those swing voters who might sit on the fence and sit out are going to come to play and vote on election day. Can I just quickly add to that? Because the moment came when Biden was raising the response to COVID and then Trump starts going after Biden about his intelligence and his academic record, which was a total non sequitur to what to the issue that Biden was talking about. I thought, you know, aside from the fact that it was an obvious low blow that, you know, I thought of the Army McCarthy hearings and, you know, the moment that people see the guy doing just like a total sleazy low blow and revealing who he is. And of course, that was the moment when Joseph Welch said, have you no sense of decency, sir? Biden wasn't quite up to doing that. But then you saw it again when he brings up uh, Hunter Biden after Biden is talking about his son, Bo. I just wonder whether this debate will be remembered in the same way that we remember the Army McCarthy hearings. Yeah, look, I guess I, I just say briefly, then Joel, you can jump in. I like, uh, sh- yes, historically, sure, yes. As far as the media is concerned, um, I, I think that you know is will be one of many revealing moments of Donald Trump's behavior. But I, I think particularly on the on the you know the response with regards to white supremacy, I think that will that will um, be be something that sticks in people's mind. I do worry that you know if you look at the front pages this morning across the country, there's a lot of two sides spar and you know d- disparaging attacks from both candidates and pers- debate gets personal uh you know this is how you know the you know sort of local media frames this i do worry that that is a voter takeaway right not that donald trump um, had no decency and was you know like it was like cartman yelling at his mother on south park and was a man child but that their takeaway is that kind of both candidates levied personal attacks and it was a childish food fight and and um that that sort of the clarity of who was the instigator in that and who was the responsible party for that gets lost and and so i think that remains to be seen and and i and i know that you know in our focus group for Republican voters against Trump, the, the folks that we talked to are all these soft Trump voters, people who voted for him last time, but that say now that they have an unfavorable view of him. And they were really looking for something from Biden last night. And, and while I think he had a couple of good moments on the virus, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what their takeaway was from that as we talk to them over the coming weeks. The only point of difference I have with, uh, with what Tim said there is that And I should preface this by saying that I have long said that Fox News polls are among the best polls out there in terms of the media polling, and they have been 
for quite a while. Very, very stable, very steady. Fox had a poll back in uh, late July or early August, I believe it was, that asked about each candidate, do they have the empathy and compassion necessary to be president of the United States? And voters strongly said that Joe Biden did and that Donald Trump didn't. I think to the extent that you're trying to reach swing voters, those people who may not have made up their mind, I think Trump lost an opportunity to do it. And by the way, I don't think he can repair it. Uh, this is a president we've seen in, in nearly four years who has no reparative skills. So I think for those voters who were sitting there thinking, I'm going to see how these guys do. Tim may be right. They may not tune in again. But I think what they saw gives Biden an advantage with any people who were sitting on the fence last night. I don't think any swing voter heard anything from Donald Trump that suggests he can bring the decency, the empathy, the compassion to the job that people believe is necessary. Tim, I want to ask you, as someone who watched Trump debate a lot in 2016 while you were advising Jeb Bush and someone who yeah. uh, writes about him now, you know, in 2016, this sort of reminds me of, of what Philippe Reigns, Hillary Clinton's advisor and, and prepped her on debate, said, which is that he is not a good debater, but he's hard to debate against. And mm -hmm. that, was true in 20, that was true in 2016. And, you know, to some extent, he dominated those debates and he didn't win on points, but he did pretty well. He didn't hurt himself. Mm -hmm. So this time around, it, to me, it was a full-blown meltdown. What, what do you think's happened to Donald Trump? I mean, part of it seems to be that, you know, back then he had a theory of the case. He had an argument. He, yeah. he, he did it this time. Yeah, look, I, I think that in a lot of ways, there were some reminiscent parts of 2016 last night. I, you know, I mean, I was, you know, maybe might have PTSD from having to sit and watch watch Jeb debate Donald Trump 16 times or however many times I had to watch that. And you know, I just wanted to sometimes just put on a Jeb mask and go up there and like take one for him uh, for one, you know, let him sit out an hour because it is an exhausting experience. Um, and, and there were moments I felt like where Biden was kind of getting run over by Trump last night that was reminiscent of 2016. I do, I think two things things have changed or one thing's changed and then Biden did one thing I think well that not a lot of candidates were able to do in 2016 which is Biden went in with a strategy he wanted to talk to voters and say uh, talk about how, he, how much he cares about them about how he's going to bring, bring people together how he's a plan to deal with the virus while Trump doesn't while Trump's sitting in a bunker and you could tell that was his strategy going in. I thought that he executed it at times uh, he got drug in to Donald Trump crazy town at times because you just can't avoid it. And so I think Biden did well with that um, and better than uh, it's that's more, more of a challenge to do in a 16 person presidential, you know, 10 people on the stage in a presidential uh, primary debate. I think the thing that's different about Trump is that he didn't look like he was having fun last night to me. I think in 2016, not only did he have a message and a plan that was antagonistic to everybody, uh, you know, the neocons are wrong, the Obama's bad, uh, you know, Bush was bad. Uh, he had a very, you know, he was able to stay on offense. Now he's been president and he had to defend himself and, and he bristles at that. Um, and, and, he, and he, to me, you know, lost, uh, he, you know, his charm never really worked on me, but I could see how it worked on people. And he seemed to be, that seemed to be absent last night. And, and he seems to be kind of wrapped around his own axle, you know, over all these kind of mini controversies that he's obsessed with, rather than, you know, sort of focusing on a message like he did last time that was anti-establishment, anti-elite, anti, you know, kind of Bush, Obama, Clinton. Yeah, I, I want to piggyback on what Tim just said, if I can, for a second. I think that last phrase is the most important thing. 
And I was in that debate prep and Philippe was brilliant. He was doing things during debate prep where Hillary would stop and say, is he really going to do that? And Philippe said, absolutely. But it makes it very hard to prep for. But Tim said he was the anti-establishment candidate in 2016. He's now been president of the United States on his watch. 200,000 Americans are dead. He is the establishment candidate now as much as Joe Biden is. And those kinds of things play very differently when you are the outsider anti-establishment challenger than when you are president of the United States, arguably the most powerful person on earth and 200,000 people have died from this pandemic and he refuses to take responsibility. He refuses to offer the kind of condolences and the empathy that you think a president would offer. So I think the dynamic is different in a way that makes it much harder for Trump to change and do what he really needs to do in the next two debates. I don't think he has it in him. Okay, Joel, you basically said that uh, Trump can't come back from this and the polls consistently show him, you know, eight to 10 points back and, um, not in no commanding lead in any battleground state. But, <laughs> big but, you were the pollster for the Clinton campaign in 2016. You were confident your candidate was going to win. The polls showed her consistently ahead. What is different this time that makes you confident that Biden is as much ahead as the polls indicate? Yeah, I think if there's anything, and I've said this publicly before, that we on the Clinton campaign really did miss, and I just referenced it, is how much there was an anti-establishment mood in America and in the world in 2016. And Trump was able to leverage that and capitalize on it. Right now, we are in desperate emotional need of security and reassurance and compassion and empathy because our whole world has been disrupted. You know, Trump's ratings on the uh, coronavirus right now are about 20 points underwater, 15 to 20 points. So, you know, we're in a very different dynamic right now. And if you look at the data in 2016, everything changed in the last two weeks. So I'm not saying it can't happen again. But the terrain on which Trump has to play defense right now extends beyond states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, which if he loses, his map is gone. Uh, he's struggling right now in, in states like Arizona, Georgia. I just see them having a very difficult hand here. Sam, what do you think? If, if you were advising the, the Biden campaign, what would you be warning about right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I it's, I agree with Joel. Uh, I worry a little bit about the enthusiasm on both sides. I mean, obviously, we're focused on the swing voters, and, and I think it's hard to argue with Joel about about how Trump is not really doing anything to win back, particularly the people he lost in eighteen. I think that there is an entire, you know, category of a working class white voter that did not turn out last time that is Trump's path to victory this time is um, juicing that base. And so if I'm the Biden campaign, you know, as far as the debate's concerned, I, I go in with the same strategy I went in last night. I think it served him well uh, for the next two. I think he particularly can use empathy in a town hall debate. But um, I, I'm really focusing my attention and resources to how we can ensure, especially amidst this pandemic, especially amidst questions about mail voting and, you know, uh, you know, the naked ballots in Pennsylvania and all these other things, you know, that every re possible resource is dedicated to that, um, because I think that is Trump's path at this point uh, is 
is, is some sort of um, hiccup in the election process through the upper Midwest in particular and Florida, followed by, you know, an even greater turnout of working class white vote uh, than he had last time. I think it's an inside straight, but that, that would be what, we, what I'd be guarding against if I was Biden. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would just add that today is September 30 as we tape this. I go back and remember October 7th of 2016 when the Access Hollywood tape came out and everybody was convinced the race was over at that point, yep. that there was no way Trump could come back from that. So, you know, I don't know, <laughs> you know, can we really be as sure as um, Joel, as you are suggesting that the race is over? So it's a really interesting point, Michael. And um, I don't want to kick questions back to the media folks on this, but <laughs> Bernstein, Bernstein Center up at Harvard does a, a review of the campaign and press coverage, right? And the week after the Hollywood uh, Friday night, the uh, Access Hollywood tape comes out. And in the seven ensuing days, remember WikiLeaks makes its first dump mm -hmm. simultaneously. What a coincidence. And the media coverage over the next seven days were more about Hillary's emails than they were about Access Hollywood. So maybe that's on the campaign that we didn't recognize how much the coverage was being skewed that way. And we thought that that how Access Hollywood tape had penetrated. But what people were hearing over and over again was the same thing that made them dislike Hillary Clinton. The other difference here, Michael, is that in 2016, you had two candidates both nominees had historically high unfavorable ratings. They were both at about 55 to 57% unfavorable with the voters. That's not the case right now. Yeah. Let me just ask both of you about the, the Senate. Do, do you all think that this debate has any impact at all in some of these Senate races where Republicans are you know, in very tough battles? And I'm thinking obviously about Susan Collins and Maine, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Martha McSally, uh, Tom Tillis, but also, you know, jo Joni Ernst in Iowa, you know, maybe even David Perdue in, in Georgia. Will this have any impact on those races at all, do you think? Uh, Tim, why don't you start? Yeah, um, look, I, 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 there's something that people don't realize about the Senate uh, races that has changed from last time. Uh, Donald Trump actually ran behind Republican Senate candidates in, in every state, except I think maybe New Hampshire and Nevada, one or two of the competitive ones. So I'd have to double check on that. But this time he's running ahead of Republican senators. And it's not just a name ID gap. I mean, he's running ahead of them on, on, the, on the ballot um, where uh, uh, he's getting a higher percentage and, and the opponent's getting lower. If you looked at North Carolina, uh, for example, you know, Tillis is, is significantly behind Trump. Uh, this is true in some other states. So how did these guys get out from under him? It's very challenging. Uh, what the big change from 2016 is that my people, basically, the people that were Republicans or conservative independents that didn't like Trump voted for Republicans still down ballot. They've left. Like, they're gone. They left in 2018, and they've left now. And I don't see a path for Cory Gardner or Susan Collins um, to win them back. And so... And then the other thing that's happening is that Trump still has a kind of blue collar, independent, former Democratic base that don't that don't trust Republicans, but they like Trump. And so this is a, a double edged sword.
board that makes things tough. Now, the map is, I think, challenging. You have to pick up in a, a state of in Georgia, Iowa, Alaska. I mean, these are Montana. These are pretty red states uh, for the Democrats to get any advantage that's more than 50-50 or 51-49. And so, you know, they might run closer than 2016 and still not actually get over the hump. Um, that, that's the biggest concern, I would say, for the Democrats. You know, one big event uh, coming up is the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett, which is going to get a lot of coverage. And, you know, the stakes are pretty high for the senators and it could have spillover for the presidential race. What's your take on what impact that can have? And Joel, how would you advise Democratic senators on the committee to handle that. We saw just yesterday, I think uh, Schumer and Elizabeth Warren said they won't even meet with her. And I wonder how that will play. Yeah, I think that's a mistake. You're going to have hearings, whether you like it or not. And I would say meeting with her is an opportunity to probe territory that you might uh, uncover that you can exploit during the hearings. I think at the end of the day, voters who are not loyal Republicans are going to see this as a a rigged game to some extent. Those that pay that much attention, I don't think a lot will, in the sense that they know that Barack Obama was denied an appointment in his year, many more months out from the election than Donald Trump was now. He was the sitting president. So I think Republicans are going to have to play a little defense on that. But at the end of the day, I think this is um, going to be a push, if you will, between Republicans and Democrats and the election will come down to swing voters uh, in the states that we always talk about. And I think suburban voters, where Donald Trump is struggling, and I think that the hearing, if Democrats don't overplay their hand, will lead to a lot of suburban voters being very alienated by Judge Barrett. What would be overplaying their hand? Look, I think there was a lot of blowback in the Kavanaugh hearings, like, you know, going off subject, going off tangents, like stick to the basics here. If this candidate for the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment has weaknesses that are related to issues that people specifically care about, I would go with those. I don't have the opposition research on Judge Barrett. We know she has said things, by the way, about mixing religion in her rulings, which, you know, we have a First Amendment that very specifically also talks about there shall be no establishment of religion. How do you put a judge on the Supreme Court who's talking about establishment of religion? It's antithetical to the Constitution. I would stay in those kinds of lanes that I think will alienate middle-of-the-road voters and not the typical lanes we've been in before, expose things about her that will be new and uh, uh, alienating to um, swing voters. That's how I would play this. I would not play this as a partisan game. Hey, Joel, sticking with the Supreme Court, the one kind of uh, persistent criticism from last night of Biden, other than you know, style, uh, you know, in terms of substance was on this question of whether he would pack the courts, which he did not answer. Uh, And then when Kamala Harris was interviewed on CNN, she was asked the question, she dodged as well. Now, you know, I think a lot of people think that Joe Biden would not be in favor of packing the court personally. He's an institutionalist, and that's not, you know, something that he wants to, to do. But is he going to have to answer that question between now and November 3rd, or can he continue to dodge it? And should he? Yeah, I think you can continue to dodge it. You know, there, there, there are a certain number of voters who will vote based on Supreme Court. 
It's not a large group of voters. They're voting for the person they want to be president of the United States. It is a factor in the decision for some voters and around certain issues. I think on those issues, the people who are voting on the Supreme Court are probably pretty even on the right and the left. And she's going to have, uh, Judge Barrett's going to have her supporters and she's going to have her opponents. And I think there, she could be alienated to people in the middle. So that's why I say if you, if you play your hand right here, she may cause herself more problems. And as for Biden, you're electing the president of the United States. I think talking about packing the Supreme Court is something that, you know, people may be more open to. They may be mo open to more than nine justices. I don't think anybody has a whole lot of confidence in the way Mitch McConnell has run the Senate and confirmation hearings, given what he did to the nation's first black president in 2016 and what he's doing now to bend over backwards and jump through hoops to get this nominee through in, in absolute opposition to everything he said in 2016. So the, the, the political calculus that is just overt and overtly political, I think will give Democrats a little more of a free hand to add two justices. Why are we limited to nine justices? It wasn't always nine justices. We've added justices. Well, FDR tried it and it didn't turn out so well for him. But, um, and I do it think- It was extreme. Well, he, he ran four terms and nobody else yeah, has. So and and, I, and I do wonder about Biden's refusal to answer the question about whether he would support expanding the Supreme Court. That seemed like a perfectly legitimate question to ask a presidential candidate and something voters would have a right to know the answer to. He just basically said, I don't want to answer because I don't want my answer to become uh, the issue, which doesn't sound terribly persuasive to me. But Tim, a question for you on this. You're a never Trumper, but you're also a Republican who worked for uh, Jeb Bush in 2016. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett strikes me as the kind of nominee who would have been at least considered if nominated by a president, uh, Jeb Bush. Do you want to see Amy Coney Barrett confirmed? For sure. And I, I, my view on Amy Coney Barrett comes down to this. Like, had the Republicans did the responsible thing and held a vote on Merrick Garland, even if they, even if he didn't succeed, right? Even if, even if he ended up not getting the votes, actually holding hearings and a vote on Merrick Garland last time, then, then I would think that holding hearings and a vote on Amy Coney Barrett this time would be totally appropriate. And while me and Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, she's you know maybe a little farther down the social conservative side of what used to be the Republican coalition um, than I was, she would have been a totally appropriate pick and, and certainly would have been a person that Jeb so, would have so, um, can, so will she help Trump with voters like you who you know may have their doubt well not exactly like yeah. you because you're a never trumper <laughs> but voters who have their <laughs> sure, doubts sure. about Trump but are attracted to the idea of having a strong conservative I'll know this for sure next week because we're going in the field with the Republican voters against Trump starting tonight uh, asking that very question trying to learn about this I suspect that it that there's a very small sliver of folks that it helps them with because it's sort of basically puts back at the front of their their mind the reasons why they voted for in the first place, uh, whereas over the last six months, all they've been reminded of about are all the reasons that they hate them. So I think that will maybe help them on the margins with a very small sliver. But look, I, in unscientific polling, you know, we've talked to all the people that submitted videos for Republican voters against Trump about this, and all of them don't 
that they, they're not wavering a bit. And if anything are more outraged by his recent actions than, than they are encouraged by Amy Coney Barrett. And I think there's another group that people forget about, which is Donald Trump won over a lot of pro-choice pro Obamacare Democrats who like, don't like globalism, don't like the Clintons, you know, don't like immigrants particularly, but had traditionally been Democrats and, you know, is a big debate. So Joel's point about staying on the issues is a big debate about whether a judge will overturn Roe v. Wade and will overturn uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. I don't, I think that there are much more of those people. If you look at Trump's polls last time, 15% of his voters were pro-choice. I think there are much more of those people than there are of like my friends, you know, who don't like Trump's tweets, but are pro-life. Uh, those people are out there, but I, I just think that on, on net, this was probably a loser on the Supreme Court for Democrats because Barrett will get through, but a winner as far as an electoral issue. Uh, so, guys, um, in a week, we're going to have uh, the uh, the one and only vice presidential debate. Give us a little bit of a preview of what you think that will be like and will it have any impact at all? Let's start with Joel. I, th- I think that it's the least <laughs> consequential debate that has happened since Gore, or excuse me, since Cheney and Lieberman in 2000. <laughs> so I think, I, I don't think, I don't think it's worth talking about it more than that. Joel, I assume yeah, you agree. I, I think uh, I, I'm, Tim and I are in violent agreement on this. I think, uh, <laughs> vice president, nobody votes for vice president. That's the yeah. truth. Um, that's my experience after four presidential elections. You know, you can do harm with your vice presidential pick, but no one's voting for you because of they like your vice presidential pick. Okay, so. quick quick follow-up. The second presidential debate, I think, is October 15th, and the format's different. It's a town hall-style debate. To what extent does that change uh, the debate? Is that going to be an advantage for Biden, for Trump? How does that play out, Joel? Well, yeah, I'll go first. I mean, you know, you remember the town hall debate was where Trump stalked Hillary around the stage. I think last night, I think the debate commission, the presidential debate commission has a real challenge on its hands. I think they have to set some ground rules here and impose them and turn off microphones if you're interrupting or stepping on your opponent's time. I think they have to tell candidates in the town hall when your opponent is answering the question, you're in your seat. And, uh, you know, they've, they've got to enforce some of that. Now, Trump will violate rules all the time. But, you know, I think when you say that on national television and then you, if he, you know, in, in, in acts in, in those same ways and violates the rules again, it turned off people last night. He's not winning any voters with that. But they have to put some decorum back in these things, but there's no point in having. Yeah. Now, I also will say that viewership tends to go down after the first debate anyway. I think that the first debate is usually the most important debate. But I also think it will be harder for Trump to engage in some of those antics in a room full of voters. And, uh, you know, you could see booing happen in a live audience if he pulls some of that stuff, even though they tell the audience not to boo, just like they tell the candidates not to interrupt. Who's to stop the audience from doing that? Uh, This does remind me that Obama was widely viewed the loser in his first debate with Mitt Romney. And Reagan was widely viewed the loser in his first debate with Walter Mondale. And they both came back uh, and and won their elections. You know, I will tell you that as part of President Obama's uh, debate team in 2012 as well, you know, and Ron Klain, who was the debate guru, the first presentation that we gave, that Ron gave to President Obama as we were beginning prep, 
very early in the process said, the first slide said, incumbent presidents always lose the first debate. We're not going to let that happen. <laughs> and um, you did. You know, you, yeah, it certainly did. But you have to remember what's going on. The person has the biggest job in the world. It is a 24-hour consuming job yeah. for people who actually do it. And, you know, you're not used to people challenging you the way they do if you're a senator or a congressman or a governor. It's a very different office. Yeah. But the point is that as low as it looks, the prospects look for President Trump right now. And maybe this is a sort of follow up to my point about the date, September 30 versus October 7th. There is still plenty of time. You know, I mentioned the Amy Coney Barrett stuff, a vaccine popping uh, in the last uh, week of the election is another wild card uh, that could uh, change the dynamic. Right. Yeah, and I would just throw out there, Mike, I, I, again, you know, I, I think that a town hall format should help Biden, but, but Biden does have a soft layer of support, you know, kind of at the bottom of his support structure. Like there are a lot of people like uh, right now in this election, people that have an unfavorable view of Biden and an unfavorable view of Trump, Biden's crushing them. Well, it was inverse in 2016. So I do think there's just a general risk between now and, and election day, though people are already starting to vote, of, of Biden basically demonstrating to voters that, that they can't trust him, that he's not up for it. Like that did not happen last night. Um, he, he perfectly passed the bar last night. But I, I do think that that's a risk going into a second and third debate, you know, particularly if I, I, I agree with Joel's assessment that Trump is not going to get any softer and cuddlier, but maybe they can get him a little more focused than the next two. You know, one thing I, I think is not is not like what's happened in previous debates, Mike mentioned Reagan, Obama, is the, the sort of media narrative of the comeback kid, you know, had always been kind of baked in. And I don't think it is anymore. I don't think that I think it's possible that Biden will will lose the next debate, will do badly. But I don't think that uh, that Trump is going to be widely characterized as having really won it. Um, we'll see. But that's my view of it. Well, the question, the challenge for Trump is can he change? And he admits he screwed up internally in his own mind to his team and said, I've got to do differently next time. If he does the same stuff, he's going to have the same result. So I guess a final question for both of you, with all the caveats of we got another uh, month and change to go, and the added caveat of the whole mail-in ballots issue, which we haven't talked about, but that looks like to a lot of people, a train wreck uh, coming in slow motion. Do you think we, when do you think we will know who won this election? And what is your level of concern that we're going to be in endless litigation for weeks after November 3rd? I don't know when we will know who won the election. A lot of ballots are already being mailed in. I think there are already over a million ballots that have been mailed in from what I read the other day. Uh, so a lot of these will come in early. And remember, a lot of them get counted early. They get counted during the day. You know, the first flash we see on the television screens at night often include a lot of the mail-in ballots. But look, any, anything can happen here. Uh, given COVID and given how many more people are likely to vote by mail. Um, states are trying to do everything they can to encourage it and to be ready for it. And Trump is doing everything he can to discourage it and obstruct it. Are you going to vote by mail or in person? Me? Yep. 
Oh, I, uh, I've requested an absentee ballot because I'm, uh, I'm not in New York State right now where I vote and uh, won't be on election day. Uh, Tim? I, I haven't decided. I'm trying to decide whether it's worth risking the COVID fight to go be with my Arvat brethren in D.C. Um, election night uh, and to have some emotional support or not. Um, so uh, TBD. But uh, I, I think that it's uh, the litigation side of things, I think, is definitely a big thing to be concerned about. You know, the, this Pen the Pennsylvania naked ballot example that I mentioned earlier where, you know, a judge ruled that, that, that you can discount a ballot if it's in one envelope but not in the safety envelope. That was an alarming ruling. And I think that, you know, there, there's going to be a series of those sorts of things that the Republicans uh, are trying to push, you know, that, that could tie this thing up if it's not a blowout. If it's not a blowout, which is the sort of big question. Well, yeah, and, um, and on that point, if it is a blowout, when will we know and which states uh, will be the tipping point, point states? Uh, Florida, people talk about. Are there other states to watch? Well, I mean, look, I think you have to watch Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin again. Biden has, you know, mid-single-digit leads there now. Those are the three states that have been part of the blue wall that we lost in 2016. And then, um, I mean, right now, Biden also has a slight lead in Ohio. You know, last week, Fox News had him up five points there. Yeah, um, and, and actually, Ohio, uh, they count their ballots as they come in, and I think their polls close at 7.30. Right. So. But I think, um, you know, you, you're looking at, you know, some, some other states that are, that are close right now, uh, Georgia, North Carolina. And again, you know, as, as somebody who's been – on the winning side and the losing side, you want to have as big a map possible. And right now, Biden has a much bigger bat map to play on than Trump does. Tim, what are you, what are you looking at? Which states are you uh, looking yeah, at? Yeah, look, I, Pennsylvania and Arizona are where we're spending most of our money with RVAT. We added in Florida, which I think is is a hedge state. I, I don't think it's necessary for uh, Biden, but it's going to be it's a really tough map for Trump if Biden wins it. Almost impossible. Um, you know, the only other wild card thrown there we did. There are a couple. There are. It is 2020 after all, and so <laughs> everybody always talks about the 269, 269. But there are a couple maps that get you there, um, where that. That Omaha, Nebraska district, you know, is one that we're spending a little bit of money in there too, as well, because that could be a tiebreaker for Biden, which would, of course, mean that we're, uh, you know, we're in court all the way till January um, if, the, if, it, if it landed like that. But I think you're really looking at Arizona and Pennsylvania as the way to get him over the hump, um, presuming he can win Michigan, Wisconsin. Can you explain that Nebraska deal again? They, they yeah, don't... so both Nebraska and Maine do electoral votes by congressional district. Right. So, you know, if you, so let's say that Trump wins Nebraska, uh, but Biden wins the second congressional district, which is Omaha, which is kind of a coin flip, slightly red uh, district, but maybe less red than Florida, right? So if you're looking at kind of trying, uh, you know, imagining a scenario where maybe Trump wins Florida by one, Biden could still win that Nebraska district by two. And so uh, um, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think it's Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and the Nebraska district. Uh, is one is one path to 270, and I think the other one is Florida, Michigan. All right, Nebraska we will now. I'll pay attention to Omaha. <laughs> right. yeah. Nebraska is the the mirror image uh, of of Maine, Maine, right? Because yeah. Trump will lose the state, but he'll win that 
yeah. one congressional district. Right. Right. Anyway. All right. Well, listen, guys, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, interesting discussion. And um, we will um, have you back to see how your analysis fares over the next few weeks. <laughs> Hopefully good. <laughs> okay. okay. And, and, and right. Tim, we'll, we'll want to hear the results of your, uh, your upcoming polling. I will respond. We'll have something early next week. Okay, cool. Excellent. Thanks, guys.